John and Scott and I are reading a book together. And I almost walked in this morning, brothers, and yelled out, Who moved my pulpit? Did you notice? That's the name of the book we're reading, Who Moved My Pulpit? It's got a very wonderful message and encouragement for churches going through transition. But thank you. I think Scott was instrumental in starting this up, and John helped him. No, I don't have to have a pulpit like this. But it is nice so that I don't have to try to jostle my papers and stuff. So that's why this is here this morning. It was uh, just a set in passing, and those guys were so kind. So thank you. Let me throw something at you real quick. This is free. It's dessert. You don't have to pay for it. It's just something I got this week, and I thought, the, the older I get, the more I am intentionally, intentionally trying to keep my eyes and heart focused on what Christmas is. I have to, because if I don't, I'll get caught up. And I'm just going to read these, that's all. But I just want to throw some thoughts out with you. I, I title this, Suggestions to Help Deliver Us from the Frazzle of Christmas in the West. Number one, Times of quiet meditation and prayer. Just quietly get away with God. Secondly, read the story of the birth of Christ in the Gospels and study some Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 7 or Isaiah 9 or Micah 5. Just to think about it. Volunteer or serve someplace where you can show the love of Christ in a practical way. Number four, know the meaning and the significance of the word Advent. I said that word for years and didn't know what it meant. Finally learned, of course, it means coming, the advent, the first coming of Jesus. Here's one. Give gifts with a purpose. That is, where the name and mission of Jesus is highlighted. And finally, this one was a... This is one that I don't like said to me, but the person said, say no. Another meeting, another party, another this. You just have to learn to say no. Nancy Reagan was right, wasn't she? All right, well, something that my wife and I are doing together over the last few years is beginning the first day of December, every day we try to read a Christmas meditation on the coming of Christ. And by the way, a great help for that is John Piper. Again, this year he, is, he allows you to download those 25 days with an introduction and a conclusion as well. And so uh, today is the 24th. Two days ago, uh, there was one that I think is really apropos to what we're trying to say this morning. And I quote, I feel so strongly that among those of us who have grown up in church, who can recite the great doctrines of our faith in our sleep, and who yawn through the Apostles' Creed, that among us something must be done to help us once more feel the awe the fear, the astonishment, and the wonder of the Son of God. Says John, you can read every fairy tale that was ever written, every mystery thriller, every ghost story, and you will never find anything so shocking, so strange, so weird, and so spellbinding as the story of the incarnation of the Son of God. How dead we are, he says. How callous and unfeeling to his glory and his story. John says, how often I have had to repent and say, God, I am so sorry that the stories that men have made up stir my emotions and my awe and my wonder and my admiration and joy more than your own story. Don't raise your hand, you Star Wars fans. He wrote this, not me. 
The space thrillers of our day, like Star Wars and The Empress Strikes Back and whatever the other one was that just came out, can do this great good for us. They can humble us and bring us to repentance by showing us that we really are capable of wonder and awe and amazement that we so seldom feel when we contemplate the eternal God and the cosmic Christ and a real living contract between them and us and Jesus of Nazareth. For myself, I wrote a little note here. Newsflash. Give the money you're going to spend at the movie theater to missions and wait till it comes out on Redbox. We cheapies do that. We cheapies don't go and find it when it comes out on Monday and have to stand in line and spend 9 dollars 50 dollars I'm not rebuking you. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We can wait. But why do we go there? We see all the trailers. We see all the advertisements. And our emotions are so straight. And you Trekkie fans, don't get mad at me. Okay? It's okay. He says in closing, I pray for a breaking forth of the Spirit of God upon me and upon all of us. I pray for the Holy Spirit to break into my experience in a frightening way and to wake me up to the unimaginable reality of God in flesh. Four days ago, this was written. Last night they had something at our church for the Indian community, and my friend gave this to me. Um, it's called The Word Became Flesh, A Meditation on the Paradoxes of the Incarnation. You know what a paradox is, don't you? It's something that doesn't seem to make sense. It kind of looks like it's opposite. This person by the name of Sam Storm said this, I often said, or I've often said, that the single most amazing mind-boggling verse in the Bible is John 1.14. The Word became flesh. As we approach Christmas, I thought it would be good to post again some observations I made in my book called Pleasures Forevermore. I pray you are blessed by reading this. Now get ready for this ride. This is very un uncommon, very unorthodox in many places. Take a deep breath and ponder what this means. Don't miss it. It's theological implications. This is a truth on which your eternal destiny hangs suspended. This is a truth, the beauty and majesty of which will captivate your attention and cause sin to sink in your estimation. Wherein lies the power to turn from iniquity and say no to sin? It lies in the power and irresistible appeal of an uncreated God who dared to become a man. The Word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter. Eternity entered time. The independent became dependent. The almighty became weak. The loved became the hated. The exalted was humbled. Glory was subjected to shame. Fame turned into obscurity. From inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief. From a throne to a cross. From ruler to being ruled. From power to weakness. Woo! He says, stay with me for a moment. I've got to read this part, and then I'll get on to what the outline you have. And I promise I'm not going to preach to the whole outline, every word and everything. I just had to share this with you since I got it last night. But listen to this description. This is not something I would even go near and get close to. Listen to what he says. If it hasn't hit home yet, perhaps the following will help do the trick. Think of the conception. God became a fertilized egg, an embryo, 
a fetus. God kicked Mary from within her womb. How about his birth? God entered the world as a baby amid the stench of manure and cobwebs and prickly hay in a stable. Mary cradled the Creator in her arms. I never imagined God would look like that, she could say to herself. Envision the newborn Jesus with a misshaped head, wrinkled skin, and a red face. Just think, angels watched as Mary changed God's diapers. Tiny hands that would touch and heal the sick and yet be ripped by nails. Eyes, what color were they? We don't know. Tiny feet, where would they take him? We don't know. That likewise would be pierced by nails. She tickled his side, which one day would be lanced with a spear. How about his infancy? God learned to crawl and stand and walk. He spilt his milk and fell and hit his head. When he was a young man, was he uncoordinated? Did he go through that awkward time of growing? How well did he perform at sports? Perhaps Jesus knew the pain of always being picked last when the kids chose up sides for a ball game. God learned his A, B, C's. And how about as a teenager? Jesus probably had pimples and body odor and bad breath. God went through puberty. His voice changed. He had to shave. <laughs> Girls probably had a crush on him, and boys probably teased him. There were probably some foods he didn't like. No doubt squash was among them. <laughs> How about his job as a carpenter, learning from his father? Callous hands, dealing with customers who tried to cheat him or complained about his work. How did he react when they shortchanged him? Says Sam Storm, some are bothered when I speak of Jesus like this. They think it's irreverent and shocking. The marvel of this is that he did it for lost sinners like you and me. It was an expression of the depths of his love for sinners that the word entered the depths of human ugliness, human weakness, and human humiliation. We lose the wonder when we don't think along those lines, don't we? It's good to be reminded. Well, the very first message I preached to you, do you remember it? You can't leave today unless you can write it on a piece of paper and pass that test. Because I know it was so impactful, you'd have never forgotten it. Well, I'll just remind you. It was called The Wonder of God's Salvation. And we keyed in on why was it so wonderful? What was it that caused it to wonder? Well, the condition of the people who got it, the grace of the one who gave it, and the consequences that they received from receiving it. So we talked about the wonder. Well, today, from the cross, I want to go back to the manger, and I want to talk about that word once again, the wonder of the coming of the Son of God in flesh. Remember what the word wonder means? It means something to cause astonishment or admiration with the accompanying words of praise and actions that go along with that. If you want one of the many biblical illustrations, you could turn to Romans chapter 11. After Paul deals in chapters 9, 10, and 11 with Israel and election and all of those things, he concludes that chapter 11 by saying, Oh, the depth, the riches of the... He breaks forth into a doxology. Because as he's penning these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's, he's taken up, he's beside himself. And so he just pauses and leads us to the grace and love and kindness and mercy of God. That's wonder. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So we're going to work our way through this familiar passage of Scripture. 
that's connected with the birth of Jesus. And I just want to leave us with seven things about the wonder. And again, because of the interest of time and because I shared some of those things a moment ago, I want to just briefly talk about this. If you have an outline, you can take it home and open your Bible and kind of get some thoughts yourself. If you're taking notes, just maybe jot down a word or two that might help you if you want to study that. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And the passage has already been read, and we're just going to allude to it. We're not going to read the verses again. They're there on your outline, and you can see what we're talking about. When we talk about wonder, that which causes astonishment or admiration, there's some things that help us to do that. Number one, the wonder of the sovereignty of God. Now, if you want to remember what the word sovereignty means, in the middle of it is a five-letter word, R-E-I-G-N, reign. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about the reign of God over everything. I've got several quotes I could give to you this morning. Let me just give you a couple of them. R.C. Sproul, and I want to see you as R.C. because he just passed away and went home to be with the Lord, a man who had such an impact on my life. R.C. says this, said this, If there's any element of the universe that is outside of God's authority, then he's no longer God at all. In other words, sovereignty belongs to his deity as God. Sovereignty is a natural attribute of God. God owns what he makes, and he rules what he owns. And another man, maybe you're familiar with J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says this, Divine sovereignty is a vast subject. It embraces everything that comes into the biblical picture of God as Lord and King in this world, the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will, directing every process and ordering every event for the fulfilling of his own eternal plan. There is no renegade molecule in all of the universe that's outside of the scope and power of Almighty God. He rules and reigns. Psalm 103, verse 19 is a very powerful verse where it tells us that God has established his sovereignty, his throne in the heavens, and he rules over all things. Well, do we see sovereignty in this Christmas story? Oh, we sure do. Who's the gentleman in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 who issued a decree? Caesar Augustus. Now, why did Caesar Augustus do that? Did he read the Bible and knew that something had to happen in order for this baby that Mary's carrying to be born? Not at all. He's doing it for his own purposes. He's he's reining people in. Taxes will come out of that. He will expand. He will get richer. He thinks he's doing, he's bidding. But he has no clue that what he does is part of God's sovereign plan to bring Mary and Joseph to that place so that Jesus Christ could be born. Why did Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem? Only because of the Caesar Augustus' command? No. If I remember correctly, in Micah chapter 5, it was prophesied, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, one whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. That speaks of his Godhead, his deity before time ever began. So we see God sovereignly prophesying, bringing to pass what he prophesied, even though this king thinks he's doing his own bidding. God truly does his own bidding. 
Do you know what Proverbs 21.1 says? Please remember this when you see all of the kings and rulers and potentates of the world thinking that they're doing what they want and they're going to accomplish their purposes. I love this picture. Proverbs 21 and verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like water. He turns it whichever way he wants. So one might stand up and boast that I've made a great decision as the leader and king of this nation. No, you have only done the bidding of Almighty God because God is sovereign. And we see his sovereignty in this Christmas story. And that should cause us to wonder and stand back in awe over God accomplishing his purposes. And this same God is sovereign over your life and sovereign over my life. We are not victims in any sense of the word. The word accident does not belong in a Christian's vocabulary. There are no... Now, there's unforeseen circumstances. There are unplanned things. But we are not accidents. We are not victims. God is sovereign over all things. My life, my history, my family. Secondly, we see in the Christmas story the wonder of God's wisdom. Now, if you have your Bible, turn over just a couple of pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul there is talking about the wisdom of God and contrasting it with the wisdom of this world. Beginning in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For the the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who thinks they're wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater in this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And as he works his way down through that passage, he concludes by saying this, what is the bottom line? What is the consequence of believing that God's wisdom, and he uses kind of a a contrast here, God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. But the bottom line is this, that no one will ever boast or glory in the presence of God, but if he boasts or glories, he will glory in God alone. This matter of Jesus Christ being born this way is part of the wise plan of God. And we see his wisdom in directing and bringing to pass what He has brought to pass for the salvation of lost people. Thirdly, we see the wonder of the grace and mercy of God in verses 8 through 10. God sends an angelic messenger to announce the birth of the Messiah. Now, to whom does he make this announcement? Well, he could have sent him to Caesar Augustus, but he didn't. He could have sent him to King Herod, but he didn't. He could have sent him to the high priest or the chief priest, but he didn't. He ignored them. To whom does he send them? The shepherds. Now, do you know anything about the shepherds in that day? And I don't think it's a whole lot different today, but certainly in that day. Shepherds once had been held in high esteem, even among God's people. But now they had become unwanted. As a matter of fact, most of the time, they were not allowed into the town. They were the homeless-like type people who were not even allowed into town. They were left out. They were pushed to the side. They smelled like sheep. Ever been around sheep? 
my very first pastorate in Michigan, man in my church, his father had sheep and pigs, and his father went away to Florida, and he asked us if we'd stay in his house and take care of his house and his sheep and pigs, and we did. Oh, 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 oh. It takes the hair, in, I didn't have hair in my nostrils then, but I do now, but it just curls it. It's terrible. They smell. And people who work with them smell too. They slept on the ground. They didn't live in the cities. Their jobs made them little or no money. They came from the lower rung of society. Abraham, Moses, and David were heroes, larger than life, but they were remembered for greater things than shepherding. Shepherds were, as someone has said, so yesterday and so not today in Jesus' world. So why did the angel reveal this to shepherds, the lowest of the low? Well, I've got some thoughts here that I have learned in my studying again. What about sheep? What was the purpose of sheep in Israel's history, their sacrificial system? What was it that was sacrificed during Passover? Who is Jesus recognized at as in John chapter 1? Behold the Lamb of God, the sheep of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was God giving us a message even in this way that that's what was going to happen? I think it's very possible. God makes no accidents. So the sacrificial death of Christ could have been part of that, that plan. Abraham, Moses, and David, I alluded to a moment ago, were all shepherds. And God made some tremendous promises to them. Perhaps God, in announcing it to shepherds, was bringing to pass his promise. Those are, I'm not so sure. But there are a couple of reasons why I think that it was this way. Number one, God himself likens himself to a shepherd. Psalm 23 and verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. You're about the Sunday school class, little children learning Psalm 23. Teacher's doing her best. She said, we're going to learn verse 1 this week. That's all. You can take it home, learn it, come back, and we're going to see if he can remember it. So Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They all went home. They practiced it. They came back the next day. Teacher opens the class and says, okay, does anybody remember our verse from last Sunday? Yes, I do. Well, would you say it for us? Well, sure. She stands up very proudly and she says, the Lord is my shepherd and that's all I want. She said, well, honey, you missed the wording, but you sure got the emphasis of that verse. God likens himself to a shepherd. Isn't that interesting? I think it is. And of course, Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. So even at this point in history, God is showing to us his attributes, his character, and the mission of his own son. And perhaps, and I'll just borrow this, if God chose to reveal his glory first to them, and he did, then the king of glory is making an important statement to each one of his own sheep today. And if you're a child of God this morning, you're likened to a sheep. Now, that's not always complimentary. You know something about sheep? Can I say this nicely? They're stupid. They can walk through an opening in a hedge, get to the other side, and forget where they came back, where they came from, and can't find their way back. So the shepherd has to take care of them. They are dependent upon the shepherd, aren't they? But here's the great thing. Each one of God's sheep 
Jesus Christ comes to in his mercy. And no matter what rung of the ladder they're on, none are too low, none are too insignificant, none are too unimportant, none are too powerless, none are too forgotten or too anything for God to love them, to find them, to redeem them, and to bring them back to the fold. There's two pictures in the New Testament. Quite often we go to Luke 15. By the way, I think Luke 15 is one parable with three acts. The parable is one parable about something that's lost. There's a lost coin, there's a lost sheep, and there's a lost boy. And each of them all ends with the same thing, rejoicing in heaven when they're found. But there's also an allusion to that very same thing in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, where Jesus says, the sheep go, there's 99 left, but what does the shepherd do? He goes and finds that one sheep. That's a wonderful picture of God's love and concern and care for us as his people. And I think that perhaps that's one of the messages that God wants us to see as this is first revealed to those shepherds about the coming of the Son of God. So we see his sovereignty, we see his wisdom, we see his grace, we see his mercy. We also see number four in verse 11, the wonder of the baby. Who is this baby? He is Savior who is Christ, the Lord. Savior, back in Matthew chapter 1, it was told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Mark Lowry wrote this song. I didn't know this until a while back. I've heard it sung by various artists. But the, the song, perhaps one of the most popular Christmas songs now, is Mary Did You Know. Isn't that a wonderful song? The one phrase in there, Mary, did you know this child that you deliver will soon deliver you? You're delivering the deliverer, the one who will save even you from your sin. He's a Savior who is Christ, Christos, the anointed one, the appointed one, God's choice. Behold the Lamb of God. And At any time, I understand, during that day, when it was time for Passover, there would be thousands of lambs brought in to be sacrificed. And in the midst of all that bleeding and noise and activity, John says, Behold, the Lamb, the one and only Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Don't get distracted by all the other ones. There's the one you need to look for. Savior, who is Christ, God's choice, God's anointed one, God's appointed one. And that last word there is Lord. Greek word is kurios. The Hebrew word is Adonai, speaking about his kingship, his lordship, his rulership. This baby in this manger is Christ the Lord, the one who will save people from their sins. Number five, there's the wonder of the condescension and humility of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, it's an interesting verse. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and Rachel alluded to that this morning, I thought that was wonderful. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. And what kind of bedclothes is he wrapped in? Swaddling. I can't say this 100% definitively, but I understand quite often corpses were wrapped in swaddling cloth. Burial cloth. Is there significance in that? I don't want to go too far in my typology, but I think it's possible that there was a message even then that this one who was born wrapped in these cloths would someday give his life 
as a ransom for sinners. So why was the Savior and King born in a place where animals were kept? Why was he then laid in the animal's food trough? Well, surely God's Son deserved a high-profile birth in the most elegant of surroundings. But instead of God's own Son making his appearance on earth in some fancy place, he is found in the lowliest of circumstances. This humble birth conveys an amazing message to creation, the transcendent God condescended to come to us. Instead of coming to earth, not born with a silver spoon in his mouth, as a pampered, privileged ruler, Jesus was born in meekness as one of us. You remember Matthew chapter 11 when he says, I am meek and lowly in heart? Surely he was talking about this as his beginning as a man. He's approachable. He's accessible. He's available. There are no palace gates to bar the way to him. No ring of guard prevents our approach. The king of kings comes humbly, and his first bed is a manger. Now, in my study, I discovered something. I, I don't know about you, but I love to study the scriptures, mostly because I find out what I don't know. There's always something to learn, and with this information age, there's so much out there, it's incredible. But, let me share this with you quickly. People of this, whoever this person was, I didn't get his name. It's from the Rittmeyer Archaeological Design website. He says, people have asked me where I think Jesus was born. I reply that scripture and archaeology show that the place was not a randomly chosen cave in Bethlehem, but a location that had been prepared centuries earlier for this event. That, that piqued my interest. I said, oh, really? Well, tell me about it. Here we go. What's the importance of Bethlehem and the inn that was chosen by God to place his son at his birth? When Joshua conquered Jericho, he cursed the city so it became a city of death. Rahab, you remember Rahab? Rahab was the only person with her family that was saved. Rahab married Solomon and their son's name was Boaz. Ever heard that name? Boab, who must have settled in Bethlehem when Judah captured its inheritance. Boaz married Ruth in Bethlehem. She became the great-grandmother of David. Gentile Ruth was, of course, one of those amazing few women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. King David was born in Bethlehem and anointed king in Bethlehem. There's a, there's a common theme here. Hang in with me. Near the end of his life, David had to flee from his son Absalom when his son Absalom rebelled against him. He stayed with an aged man whose name was Barzillai. Probably won't call your son that, will you? Hey, Barzillai, come here, I want to talk to you, okay? Barzillai. Barzillai had a son whose name was Chimham. Who returned with David to Jerusalem. To provide him with a source of income, it appears that David may have given him part of his own inheritance in, guess where? Bethlehem with an inn that is mentioned in the Jewish source, Targum Yerushalmi, and it's called Geruth, Chimham, or the habitation of Chimham. Now, here we go. Small towns like Bethlehem usually only had one inn. It is reasonable to suggest that Jesus may have been born in this inn. Through the generosity of David to Barzillai, to Chimham, a birthplace for Jesus was prepared long before he was ever born into this world. Isn't that cool? <laughs> That's just cool. 
There's God's sovereignty once again. There's God's providence again. Mary and Joseph didn't come into town and say, oh, Joseph, look on the GPS. Are you any hotels in town here? They went to a place that had been prepared for them. And even as the star directed those people on the hillside to find Jesus, I believe God directed them to go right to that place. And if it's possible that that was the only inn in town, well, God had prepared it for the birth of his son. Number six, wonder at the angels. I'm going to say this in passing because I'm not really sure. We just sang it this morning. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. You'll find that same phrase or idea in It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, O Little Town of Bethlehem and Silent Night. It is possible that the angels didn't sing. It's possible that they did. I'm not going to jump on one side or the other, although I do favor more that they didn't sing. And I'll tell you why for two reasons. If you disagree with me, that's okay. Come up later and apologize and I'll forgive you. The word in Luke chapter 2 and verse 13 is a Greek word, I'm not going to try to impress you with it, is a common word in Scripture, and it means literally to speak or to talk. Did they sing? I don't know. Where did they get their voice lessons? I don't know. Where did the instruments come from? I don't know. Is God sovereign? Could he produce? I know that. But there's one verse of scripture in Peter that kind of makes me lean toward, no, I don't think they actually sang, but I, I think they shouted and proclaimed. And it's 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. The reference there is to salvation. And at the very end of that verse, it says this, that this salvation into which the angels would love to be able to pull the door back and understand what's going on. So I wonder if the angels cannot sing of salvation and redemption and forgiveness from sins because they've never experienced it. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is this. Though we have no real definitive clue, the angels, curious as they are, are blessed to give praise to the one who is to be the Redeemer. Perhaps further study would just enlarge our wonder and our interest in that subject. Just something in passing. Finally, one more thing. What have we got so far? We've got uh, so far the wonder of God's sovereignty. We have the wonder of his wisdom, the wonder of his mercy and grace, the wonder of the child himself, the wonder of the condescension and humility of God, the wonder of the proclamation, perhaps not song of the angels, and finally the wonder of promised peace to those whose lives are characterized by what Isaiah says in chapter 57. He says, there is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. People who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they don't have peace. They may have times of tranquility that they find from various drugs and other things, but they don't have genuine peace that passes all understanding. But the wonder is that those of us who are born aliens and strangers to God's grace, who are filled with turmoil, can really know two things about this peace. Number one, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, having been justified by God, we have peace with God. That's redemption. That's salvation. God and I are no longer at war. There is a peace treaty that's been signed by the blood of Christ. And now there's peace between us. But there's a whole lot of difference in having the peace with God 
and enjoying the peace of God. And those prepositions in the scriptures are very, very important. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, if you want to get a handle on worrying, don't be anxious for anything. That is, don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7 says, and the peace of God. You already have peace with God. He's your Father. Jesus is your Savior. You're in the family. You've got peace. You're no longer at war with God. You're not a rebel against God. But you and I both know that it's very possible during the course of any day to get so bent out of shape on circumstances of life that we lose our peace. When we do that, what do we do? How do we overcome that? He says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, there's the clarify, God will do what? And verse 7 literally says, we'll build a wall an impregnable wall around your heart and God will keep you in the matter of peace. Now, it doesn't take the circumstances away. It doesn't alter sometimes the things that are going on, but in the midst of that, there is a settled peace that no one can take away. The fact that God would not only provide that, but that God would impart that to us, I think is something. And the more we live, Folks, our greatest threat is not North Korea and Rocket Man. Our greatest threat looks at us in the mirror in the morning. The struggles we have of life in and of itself that can rob us of peace and enjoyment of walking with God. But please notice, the text says it's only reserved for those with whom God is pleased. And with whom is God pleased? Well, obviously missionaries and pastors, and those spiritual people who walk with God every day. God's really pleased with them, but me? No, I don't think so. Well, please don't believe that. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God's pleased with you. Does he get upset with you? Mm -hmm. Does he get angry sometimes? Mm -hmm. But he's still pleased with you. You're his child. His son died for you. You are covered. You are robed in the righteousness and the merits of his son. He's pleased with you. And when he sees you, he sees you in his... Could God ever be displeased with his son, Jesus Christ? Well, listen to him at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So if you're in Christ, God's pleased with you. And you can enjoy his peace. Take his formula, put it into practice. Well, how do we respond to this? Well, in the text we've got shepherds, and what do they do? With haste, they were praising personally and proclaiming publicly. What a great challenge. Notice, with haste, what does that mean? They did it immediately. How about Mary? It says Mary pondered and treasured. That's her mind and her heart. She was affected inwardly and in her thinking. But there's something interesting in verse 18, and I think it really implies this. It doesn't so much state it, but I think it implies it according to the language. There were others who heard, but what they did was they wondered and said, oh, wow, that's cool. Now let's go have a cup of coffee. They postponed any action 
that had moved them immediately. I ask you a question this morning. What happened December the 26th, 2004? Pastor Ed, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast last week. I'm only making a point. Do you remember the powerful earthquake off the coast of Sumatra, Indonesia on that day? Ah, oh, now I remember. Hmm. 230,000 people died. A year prior to that, almost to the hour, a 6.6 magnitude quake rocked Bam, Iran, killing 30,000 people. The next year in 2005, Kashmir had an earthquake, and in that earthquake, almost 79,000 people. Here's my point. I can remember seeing that wall of water coming up to the... Do you remember that? I was, I was moved, my Lord. I was, I was shaken. But unless I... If you'd asked me that date, I would have probably said, no, I have no idea. You understand what I'm saying? We can be moved... We can be shaken, but if something doesn't happen to alter our life because of that, then we can just postpone it and put it off and deal with it later. Well, we've set before you some wonders this morning. The question is, how how does God want me to respond? Well, if a person doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, the last song we sang captures it well, Adore. To adore means not just to be enamored with someone, but be attracted to them and embrace them. Jesus came that he might give life to lost people. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the day to trust him and believe in what he's done on your behalf. Christians, how about like the shepherds? I think with haste we should praise and proclaim. Like Mary, we should ponder and treasure but not like the crowds to postpone and procrastinate. I'm going to tell you this only because I don't want you to pat me on the back and think I'm great because I'm not. All you got to do is ask my wife and she'll tell you. I'm telling you this by way of a personal testimony. For years and years and years and years and years, I kept saying to my family, we need to do something on Christmas Day and go out and just serve people who don't have anything. And I was all moved and all stirred, but by Christmas morning, you know, I slept in, had a cup of coffee, we opened some presents, and the day went on. Till the next year. Hey, this Christmas we need... Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Yesterday my wife and I were driving back from visiting her father who's not well. And I heard on the radio a little seven-year-old boy in Texas said, you know what? Christmas is not about getting, it's about giving. So he personally rounded up and collected 1,500 toys to take to the local children's hospital. And I said, oh God. I looked at my wife and I said, you know what? I'm sick and tired of postponing this. I'm sick and tired of procrastinating. I've got to do something. So Lord willing, tomorrow morning, I get no extra credit. I get no stars in my crown. I'm not more godly than you are. God doesn't love me any more than he does you. I said, let's just, now tonight, I have a Christmas Eve service at, at Oakwood. And we're going to announce tomorrow morning at 645. That'll do it. <laughs> that'll, that'll cut out 150% of them, Right? 6.45, we're meeting at the church. Bring blankets, coats, gloves, and uh, what else are we going to do? Um, cookies. We're going to get in those vans, we're going to drive across the river, and we're going to scour the streets, and we're going to try to look for people. Why? I can't postpone it anymore. I'm tired of telling God, you know, God, I was going to do that, but you know what? I was just too busy. My own heart has been really stirred this year about homeless and people who are struggling, really struggling. Yes, I know that there's some of them that they ought to get out and get a job. But they still are hungry. 
They're still cold. Do you know that there's a community under the Mulberry Street Bridge that lives 365 days a year in tents? C.S. Lewis Institute, I went with that for a couple of years, and they made us go out on what they call an urban plunge. And Friday night we went out to that. Man, it was so cold. And when, we, when that guy pulled up the van with Bethesda Mission, they came out like, like roaches. We went to six other places. And 52 weeks a year, these two guys go out every Friday night, every Saturday night, and they pass out sandwiches and blankets and things. And I thought, wow, I just never realized it. So what I'm saying to you is, is if God has impressed upon you in your heart, in relationship to the whole Christmas story, to do something, do it. Don't procrastinate. Don't wait. Don't postpone it. Just do it. And I believe God will fill us with the word we're going to look at next week, starting with Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 again, with great joy. Did you see the word joy in the Christmas story again? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. So let's respond as God wants us to. I don't know what God wants you to do. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me, but we can do it together as God leads us and moves us to respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, the world and the amusement industry and advertising agencies every day are trying to create the wow factor and cause us to be drawn to the wonder of what they have provided for us, something we can't live without. May, in the midst of all of that, you allow us today, this Christmas, to return to the biggest wow factor that mankind has ever, ever imagined. The wow factor of God becoming flesh, Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Lord, change us, we pray. Use us, give us opportunities in our own personal lives to respond, to be moved, to proclaim, to praise you, to ponder, to treasure But whatever, Lord, it is you want us to do, don't let us postpone and get get it off to the side for another year. Help us to do it. Whatever your hand finds to do, said Solomon, do it with all your might. Help us to do that, Father, we pray. And to do it in the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand together with me. We're going to sing a cappella. Rachel could not stay. She's not well. She's got two sick children. And so she said, well, we'll just...
let me dismiss you with the ironic blessing from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen? Amen. The Lord bless you. Merry Christmas. May the Lord lead and direct you each step of each day. Thank you. Lord bless.